Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Guy Dias, a two-time Oscar-nominated production designer whose credits include Terry Gilliam's Brothers Grimm, Passengers, starring Jennifer Lawrence, and 2010's Inception. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, among them, from Guy's early beginnings illustrating movies and how that made him a better production designer, working with Steven Spielberg on Indiana Jones and the challenges of living up to the movie's expectations, an in-depth discussion on Inception, from designing the gravity-bending sets to the way the James Bond franchise influenced it as a heist movie, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So Guy, good morning. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. I'm, I'm so, so excited. There are a million ways we could start this conversation, but I thought I would begin by asking you about your early years as an illustrator, because you know you are a production designer now and you started in 2003, as we were saying with X-Men 2, but I know that you worked as a concept illustrator on you know movies like Armageddon and Planet of the Apes. I mean, sketching has been and continues to be a great part of your creative process. And I was wondering how does illustrating allow you to first off explore all possibilities for a set? And how did that background now help you today as a production designer? I think that it's just something that I've always used as a as a tool, really, sketching. And um, it uh, helps me, I suppose, quantify the size of the project, first of all. I'll not just sketch little tiny keyframes as I read a script, but I'll also sketch uh, anything from plans. I'll have little notes that say, you know, okay, I have to go big on this or whatever it is. So sketching becomes more a visual notebook for me, really. And obviously, I would dearly love to illustrate everything that I try to dream up with my team, but it's just impossible. So I'm lucky to be living in Los Angeles where I can hire a phenomenal group of people that come back time and time again to work with me and become part of that creative process. So it really breaks down like this. I will read a script. We have um, a very organized research process that goes on because obviously there's a lot of research before you even put pen to paper. And once we have research and we have sort of an idea of what we're doing, at that point, I'll make sketches and then pass those sketches to illustrators that then turn those sketches into full-blown color illustrations. And that seems to be the, the process that works in the most fluid way. And that process has enabled me, for example, on films like Passengers, which normally, when asked to design a spaceship of that magnitude and that originality, a production would be given sort of, you know, six months to develop something like that. Myself and a team of about eight people worked for 10 weeks to put together all the designs, at which point we were told we were shipping out to Atlanta and that uh, Chris and Jennifer were turning up in a further 10 weeks. So basically from getting hired to the actors turning up on set was 20 weeks. On, on a film like Passengers, which is super crazy, especially when you consider all the visual effects considerations as well. That really is, is possible when a designer is able to sketch his or her ideas and then pass them on very quickly. It's a very fluid process. There's no questions. There's no sort of, well, what did he mean when he said this? Or was he kind of meaning this or kind of meaning that? And I remember those days as an illustrator, fearlessly trying to get on paper what my designer was trying to express. And that process was always much easier when it was a designer who could draw because they could give you a sketch and say, kind of like this. You hit on a tangent, which is fascinating, which is collaborating with your team. How do you try and split up the work process when everyone's bringing to the table something slightly different? Mm. Do you try and work on an illustrative strength? Did you have a strength when you started out? Yeah, I mean, I think I do. I, I literally cast an art department in the same way as you'd cast a movie with actors. I have lots and lots of friends and collaborators now, what, nearly 20 years into my career, all over the globe. And so I can call upon people who have specialist skills. I have people, for example, that even come in and do costume design with me very early on on a production. I, I always get very concerned about presenting a world to a director where 
the sets are designed and the props are designed, but it doesn't have a clear indication of what the people or the beings will look like in these environments. And so I always take that early opportunity to get involved in costumes as well. So I would have on my core team a costume illustrator, someone who's very good at environmental work, somebody who's very good at maybe creature work, someone who's more of a an industrial design technical person who comes from world of putting cars and motorcycles and flying vehicles together. And then there's always the pleasant surprise. You always hire someone new and bring someone into your sort of design family who you've never worked with before, who has some sort of extraordinary skill that you discover. And it's always so enjoyable to watch them sort of blossom and and grow into the art department and hopefully leave my art department with the best work they've ever done. That's always the goal. Of all the projects I could ask you about first, I I get a sense that Brothers Grimm had a very special place in your heart. Allow me to ask you about that. Quote, the early pre-production on Brothers Grimm was about getting ideas down on paper while not letting any budget constraints creep in yet, which is what you talked about, getting a scope of the project. Terry Gilliam, the director, would take us on locations in Czech Republic, not so much to look for places to shoot, but to experience the architecture and draw inspiration from it. Close quote. So I was wondering, in what ways did the Eastern European architecture inform some of the sets you were building and why that project in particular was feeding you so much potential on a creative level? Well, it was my second production design film. Terry Gilliam has always been one of my big heroes. I mean, his films were extraordinary. I watched them growing up. Remember, he was very prolific in sort of the the mid to late 80s and early 90s. Extraordinary levels of creative detail. And of course, Terry, legendarily, of course, is is part of Monty Python's uh, original cast. So I, I was very starstruck with Terry on so many levels. But he sort of took me under his wing. I think he saw someone who's enthusiastic. He was a big fan of the Royal College of Art, where I was from. So he liked alumni from there. And he basically had said to me he needed designers who could draw. It was very hard for him to communicate with designers who couldn't draw. And so I fell into his lap at the right time, right place. I'd just come off, as I say, X-Men 2. I had uh, drawn probably about 50% of those sets. So I was presenting sets to him which were sets that I had drawn to full completion. But Once I got on board with Terry and we sort of broke the ice and started exchanging sketches back and forth, that's very much how we worked. I would do a sketch, give it to Terry or send it to Terry when he was back in London. We were obviously based in Prague and he would send something back and we would work back and forth like that. But he was incredibly complimentary and a good leader, a good director as well. That production was, uh, I mean, it was peppered with with problems, with actor availability. We were sort of under the umbrella of the Weinstein brothers, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so there were lots of conflicts going on. But the process itself was was really enjoyable. The architecture of Prague was extraordinary. You know, during the Second World War, The Nazis sort of bombed the shit out of most of Europe. But one of the cities that they left, partly because it was one of Hitler's favourites, quite darkly, was Prague. He absolutely loved Prague. And there were efforts to not bomb it, efforts to not uh, destroy it. So what you end up with is this extraordinary, I suppose, bubble of history that's left there, which is architecture that you really can't find in most of Eastern Europe, it's gone. And Prague becomes this sort of very, very precious monument to architecture from the 16th century through to the 18th century. It's extraordinary. And we wanted to use a lot of those locations, but because most of our film was shot during the night, we had to take a lot of that and put it onto stage or onto the back lot at Barendorf Studios. So I found myself having to recreate a lot of that architecture, but also wanting to channel Terry Gilliam's wild and, I suppose, fanciful sensibility, I wanted to add a sort of a quirkiness to it as well. Needless to say, I was completely engrossed in films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and films like that, films that looked at German expressionism and how to actually explore the architecture in an interesting way for for camera. I also, for the first time, looked at uh, miniatures and forced perspectives. A lot of the sets that you see in those 
in, in that film are half scale, quarter scale, dolls houses in some cases, you know, very, very small and uh, using camera tricks, really very old school camera tricks to create the feel that we had in, in the Brothers Grimm. I mean, it segues perfectly because the next project three years after Brothers Grimm, I was going to take a moment to ask you about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because there seems to be this beautiful and at the same time sometimes frustrating element about working in today's business as a production designer. But I can imagine that on one side, there's a lot of opportunities with digital where you can easily, you know, extend a set in CGI or just augment what's already there and built practically. And at the same time, perhaps you have a studio or a filmmaker who are a little more scared and, and rely more on that side of things. About the project, you had this to say, quote, as a production designer, I have a knowledge that allows me to be more educated in my choices of whether to use practical or digital effects. In a way, it's also about choosing where to draw the line between the two. Yeah. In Kingdom of the Crystal School, we use too much CGI, which I regret, but the story George Lucas wanted demanded it, which I fully understand, by the way, because it's a very it's a very specific kind of movie. I wanted to ask you about Indiana Jones. So what were some of the sets and sequences you're the happiest with? And in what ways do your expectations for the movie change from the movie you initially thought you were making at the beginning of the process and the movie that ultimately ended up being? Look, you know, I grew up with the Indiana Jones films. They were very precious to me. And I think like many other people out there, they were sort of an untouched franchise. They were not tainted. They hadn't been revisited in a bad way. I won't name names, but we know some of those franchises were, were hammered. So I felt a great weight of responsibility to keep the integrity of Indiana Jones, if I could and however I could. But, you know, my bosses who are legends in their own right, and I, I sat many times at, at tables literally between George and Stephen, and they are great friends and both geniuses on such an epic scale. But my biggest concern was, you know, there's that sort of thing that you, you feel when you're really in touch with a creation that somebody's made. <laughs> And they're lose, losing touch with it a little bit. So I desperately tried to push the practical elements of Indiana Jones because I think the thing that we all love and reminisce about when we look at the old Indiana Jones films, no matter how old you are, is that wonderful clumsiness and that wonderful sense of reality when Harrison Ford gets up and he's running and there's bellowing dust coming off his jacket or he falls down and you see him shake his head as he gets up. He's a clumsy hero. He's not Superman. He's not elegant. He's the furthest thing away from the beautifully elegant characters in The Matrix you could ever come up with. And that's what makes him charming. And um, for me, the idea of making sure that I was the sort of one of the keepers of, of the uh, integrity of that film was really important to me. I mean, I passionately cared about it and worked tirelessly to try and help that. But, you know, you are one department head. And in, in this case, it was the first project I'd done with Steven Spielberg. So I didn't feel politically in a very strong place to push my agenda too heavily. I was the new kid on the block, right? So there's only so much you can do. But I was very proud of the sequences that we did manage to do practically. For example, the test site, the 1950s sort of test site out in the deserts with the sort of speed sled fight was fantastic. The uh, recreation of the big sort of storage facility was fantastic, the way we were able to do that. And that was, uh, that was done beautifully. And there was, um, I think, a very seamless effort between myself and ILM. Pablo Hellman was the visual effects supervisor to make sure that when you got in that Area 51 hangar and saw all those boxes, the audience had full satisfaction from Raiders of the Lost Ark and that closing sequence, which is probably one of the greatest matte paintings ever done in cinema. And it was important to me to, to maintain that integrity there. I did find a lot of creative differences with the end of the film. I never agreed with the use of UFOs and all that, but it was what they wanted to do. And it was my job to help facilitate that. I certainly learned a great deal, had an absolute blast working on that film. It was, it was incredible. And of course, a lot of the effects were practical, you know, whether it was trap doors or we built a, an 80 foot cylindrical stone tube with a spiral staircase and each of the stairs retracted. The script came to me 
shockingly and had no booby traps in it. So I was reading an Indiana Jones script that had the storyline that you read and there were not any of the iconic, famous things that you need to see in an Indiana Jones film. You wanted to see that rolling ball and the weighted sandbag. You needed things like that because that's so much a part of the Indiana Jones sort of culture. And so I did my best to, to invent and create these things. I want to ask you a little bit about, I mean, specifically your creative relationship with Steven Spielberg, because I like to know how his understanding of conveying story through designing sets struck you. And in what way do you think he brought out the best of you as a production designer? I think Steven was always incredibly encouraging. I revered him. You know, I snuck in to see Jaws in England. You know, films used to come out a year later in England back in the 70s. So we'd heard about Jaws and the um, incredible impact it had made over here in the States. And I, I have an older sister and she sort of made me stand on my tiptoes and I snuck in to see Jaws at a very, very early age and it scared the living daylights out of me, but completely marked me for life as understanding how exciting film could be. And and Jaws to this day is, is still one of my favourite films. It, it was the big bond between myself and Brian Singer back in those old days when I worked for him. And there's a whole generation of us that absolutely revere Stephen and everything he's done for the industry and continues to do. But for me, I found him very approachable, so encouraging. He very much left you to do your job. I think that's the mark of a great professional, just a true veteran of his craft. Stephen understood that once he hired the people to do their jobs, the best way for them to do their jobs was to sort of leave them alone, you know? And it's interesting sometimes with younger directors, they will want to be a part of the process, which of course it's their absolute right to be. But sometimes they can smother a process or interfere with it without realizing it. And of course, in their perspective, they're helping, but, but maybe they're not. You get to the other end of the spectrum with someone like Stephen and I would have to make appointments with him, go see him, present to him and then wait for the feedback. That was very much the relationship. He uh, didn't particularly like scouting. I think he's a very, very busy, I mean, he's a mogul, he's a movie mogul, so he has so much to do. He can't always dedicate time to scouting. So he would only scout locations for the tech scout, which as you know, is the sort of basically the last scout you do before you shoot. So I felt a great deal of pressure there, but he always made me feel at ease about that process. Honestly, for me, We delivered set after set after set that he was extremely happy with. I was so, I was in, in heaven really on that process because here I was with one of the biggest heroes of my life and he was just happy with everything I was doing. And I, I have a wonderful memory of him getting on a bullhorn and one particular set and kind of at the end of day rap announcing to the crew that the sets he was shooting were some of the best he's ever seen in his career. And that was incredible. And he said that to over a hundred people and... I was completely embarrassed and didn't know what to do with myself, but it was it was a lovely moment. He's a, a real gentleman and continues to be an amazing director. What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. transform the world and rewrite all the rules which is why i have to steal it two years later i'll just skip ahead a little more and ask you about inception you spoke about the the creative reaction you can have to first receiving a screenplay and i wanted to ask you to your experience receiving the one from inception specifically what were the creative opportunities of designing this world that got you going Look, it was a really weird time period. My my agent at the time had called me and said, Guy, you've got to get on any film. Hollywood's going crazy. They're going to stop making movies. And uh, 
And I had this panic call from my agent saying, you know, you've got to get on anything. And the only thing that was being offered to me at that time was one of the remakes of um, The Clash of the Titans. And I remember I just got back from doing Agora with, with Alejandro Menabar and having a wonderful time designing and learning about and educating myself on antiquity. And the idea of revisiting it and remaking something as fantastic as Clash of the Titans was tempting in a sort of a geeky way, but it was also very worrying because you revisit those films and you, in a way, you destroy the history of our film culture. I mean, Clash of the Titans, the original Clash of the Titans with Ray Harryhausen doing the animation and particularly the, the sequence with the Medusa is absolutely Hollywood gold. You don't touch that. And so I was very worried about it, all that stuff. And so I turned the film down and my agent said, well, that's that. I hope you're going to be happy to be sitting around for the rest of the year. And I was genuinely worried about it. I just retreated into my garage and was tinkering with my motorcycles. And then literally two weeks later, I got this call. How do you fancy meeting Chris Nolan? He's got some secret project. He's meeting a bunch of people which in itself was quite shocking to me because he has a, a regular production designer, a very good production designer, Nathan Crowley, who's a friend of his and they've worked together for years. And so I thought, well, Chris is someone I'd never get to work with. But that's the wonderful thing about this industry. You just can never say that will never happen because the strangest opportunities come your way. So I took several meetings with Chris and loved him straight away. You know, we're similar age. We both went to, to uh, university in London. We, we had similar interests in, in a lot of things. And Chris is in some ways quite intimidating because he's one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. He knows a lot about everything. He would never admit this because he's, you know, sensibly humble. <laughs> but he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And I, I loved being with him. You know, we spent about four weeks, about a month and a half maybe, in his garage, famously. He, he starts all his projects in his, around the back of his house in his garage. And I'd read Inception and asked to read it again at the interview. I wasn't allowed to take the script away. I just simply didn't understand the script in the first read. It was just too dense and complex. I would suggest that anyone else who read it in one go and walked away and thought they understood what they were reading probably didn't. So I, I read it a second time and was able to talk to Chris about the script. But we spent a lot of time just drinking tea, as two English guys would, and talking about how we would do this film. Chris had certain things he really wanted to do. He was in the middle of his Batman franchise and he wanted a change. He wanted to do something, I think, that was tonally different. He wanted to do something that was aesthetically different. And I suppose like me, he's always had in his DNA the desire to do a James Bond film. So you can see the, the inspiration in Inception as a really entertaining heist movie, you know, sort of hyper real, slightly futuristic heist movie. You can see the influence from some of the James Bond films. Chris always believes he has that wonderful philosophy that you should try and get things on in the can, in film first, before you start tampering away in, in CGI. And we both agree that if you shoot something for real, things happen that are out of your control that are ultimately the things that make the true movie magic, to coin that cheesy expression. And I suppose a good example of that would be the rotating corridor. Most productions would handle the rotating corridor by saying, well, we're not going to put an actor in a rotating corridor that might hurt themselves. Let's have them on a green screen. Let's hang them from some wires, have them move around a bit, and then let's add the corridor in. Now, the problem with that is you end up with a, an aesthetic style, a visual style that removes any sense of danger and removes any sense of you as a human being be, being able to relate to that event because it's all too smooth. It's all too perfect and it's a stylistic choice and it works in films like The Matrix. But if you want to really engage the audience and allow them to feel as though they can actually be in that situation, you've got to do things that will bring about spectacular surprises. For example, Joe in that corridor, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, because it was a real corridor and because he'd only had a couple of days to rehearse, if you watch the fight again, you'll notice it's very awkward. It's clumsy. They're falling about in there. They're hitting things. And you see the impact on their bodies. You see the impact on their clothes, on the expressions of their face. 
And that's the thing that makes that scene special. That's the thing that makes that scene send shivers up your spine. Because you look at it and you go, fuck me, that's real. That's absolutely real. And to me, that's what I live for. It's I try to live for a moment that I can catch on camera alongside a director and a DP, having gone through this process with my extraordinary team that I work with and capturing that lightning in a bottle. And it happened a lot on Inception because we had so many opportunities to do unusual things that had never been done before with a crazy brilliant director who said, I want to do this for real. I want to train to drive down the main strip in LA downtown and smash 30 cars. Go. That segues perfectly because I was going to ask you about, you know, constructing these revolving sets. I mean, Chris, Chris was talking about this idea of repurposing technology to manipulate gravity as uh, Stanley Kubrick had done, by the way, in 2001. So I was wondering what your collaboration with special effects supervisor Chris Kobold was in regards to understanding how the technical requirements and the design of the hallway were going to influence each other. And what was the conversation in regards to designing this entire crazy rig? In Chris's garage, he he sort of magically had this uh, remote control that he'd love to press and suddenly this screen would come down and it would convert into this awesome little screening room. And so we, as I mentioned earlier, we watched a lot of the sort of James Bond films, the early ones. We had crazy stunts of people skiing off insane uh, cliff faces and then opening parachutes. And then the other film we watched over and over and over again was Stanley Kubrick's 2001. It was an incredibly important film for us. To know that back in 1967 and 68, technically they were able to cheat gravity and it still held up today. That became our benchmark. We were not interested in all the stuff that had been done since. We were only interested in things like an astronaut returning to the ship via an airlock and how that was shot and how you got that sense of weightlessness. And so we basically watched the film and still framed it and broke down what each of the individual set pieces would have been to create those images, whether it's a a sort of a space air hostess carrying a tray and then walking around and upside down. I also went off on my own and looked at some of the sort of black and white Fred Astaire films where Fred Astaire is sort of dancing and walking around a room that's rotating. I forget the name of the film now. So I did all that sort of background work. And then really it was about breaking down the various shots that you needed to show somebody in a weightless corridor and also a rotating corridor when suddenly you do have gravity and breaking those down into their individual sets. And where the corridor was concerned, we obviously had the 250-foot rotating corridor. The rig itself was very straightforward. It was big, and we were thinking big, and we knew we needed these huge steel rings. I have a sketch somewhere, the very first sketch I did to show Chris of this somewhere. We also had a match to that that was a standing set that was vertical. It was exactly the same set, but it was vertical, so that we could pull them, the characters up and down on wires and make them look as though they were floating in the center. I think one of the hardest things about the rotating corridor was that it did have a T-junction at the end. So you did have corners at the end of it. So if you imagine you're rotating something as a centrifuge, you've now got this piece at the end that's an extra 80 feet that also has to rotate around that central piece of corridor. So now your set becomes elevated off the ground by about 90 feet just simply so that you have clearance for the T-junction at the back of the set to go around. Absolutely insane. We talk a lot about the design of things, but I, I think it's important to remind listeners about how color also has a very emotional role yeah. when designing things like these. And, and about it, you have this to say, quote, it was extremely important that we made all the different dream levels read as very different places, each one with the respective color scheme. When the team is trying to schedule their target, it's a warm, stylish, relaxing hotel, perfect for a seduction. But if you're out in the street and you want to scare someone shitless, then you want to have a rainy, stark LA street, which is how you mentioned. So I was wondering, why do you think color is such a powerful storytelling tool for yourself as a production designer? And how did you and Chris try and choose and color code each sequence to ignite an emotional reaction for people? 
You know, I really believe every designer is going to agree with me on this. Our careers are all journeys and we learn things about ourselves. We learn our strengths. We learn our weaknesses. And I'm going to be honest, I think for the first couple of films that I worked on, this would be X2 and Brothers Grimm, I don't think I explored colour enough. I think I was, to be very self-critical, I think it was very one note. I think I relied on form and texture and the dramatic sort of presentation of of a shape. And colour was very much a secondary consideration for me. I'd sort of be like, oh, I'll, I'll just figure it out when I'm there. And it was a, a missed opportunity. And it was lucky for me, I think, that I, I've had the opportunities when I've had them. By the time Inception came along, I was already very focused on the idea of utilising colour properly in a sort of a scientific way, if you like, a sort of an art scientific way, which is what emotional response can I get from a colour? What is the emotions the director's trying to get out of this scene? And how can I help him tell that story? And those quotes are still relevant when when you're in Inception and there are seductions going on, whether it's in the Japanese castle or a sort of a sexy hotel bar. The colours are creamy and golden and it really is pulling on all the things that, in my mind's eye, the great artists used to use as tools to create emotional feelings from their paintings. You know, if you look at the beautiful paintings of women by Gustav Klimt. He's using these milky tones and golds to to seduce you to loving the painting. And I I wanted to try and capture that spirit. And then, of course, there's the, the harsh reality of fear and your relationship with materials like concrete and steel. We revere those materials as human beings because we know about their strength. We know about their capabilities in terms of what we can build and do with those things. But they're also very alienating materials in some ways. And and therefore, the colours that we associate with them, the blues and the sort of reflective metals and the glass, these can sometimes evoke negative feelings as well. And so I'd I'd really try hard to go through that process of making colours work for the scene. And and Inception, I had a personal big concern. While I loved the script and I loved everything that, that Chris was doing, I think one of my biggest concerns was that the audience might get lost in this maze of brilliance that he was creating. And I felt huge self-responsibility to make sure that I could divide the different dream layers by making them very, very clearly different, as you say, visually and with that color palette. They say we only use a fraction of our brain's true potential. Now, that's when we're awake. When we're asleep, our mind can do almost anything. Such as? Well, imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Yeah, like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously. And our mind does this so well that we don't even know what's happening. That allows us to get right in the middle of that process. How? By taking over the creating part. Now, this is where I need you. You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their subconscious. Dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. The movie is really about imagination. And you mentioned, I'll I'll bring up a quote right now, but the effect of creating something that just feels off a bit. So when you see this rain sequence in downtown LA, it just doesn't feel right. Quote, when you walk onto a set that's been carefully art directed in terms of detail, it creates a very eerie feeling. We stripped everything away downtown, took all the advertising and street furniture out. So you have these insane chases with motorcycles and vehicles, but instead of having a typical street, there's something off about it. You can't put your finger on it, but you feel it. So I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about those days of shooting, taking over multiple blocks of downtown LA and the challenges of creating a a very artificial feel for LA, you know, from again, the blocking the sun and the rain machines to then driving a full-size train through the street. It was incredible to do that. And um, really all I could do was, you know, to create that sort of sense of alienation, we stripped down all of the sort of um, visual noise that surrounded the basic architecture. So I basically removed 
or covered anything that was going to bring about too much detail. I wanted to create a, a slightly fake environment, if you like. We strive all the time in cinema to create realistic environments. And this was an occasion where I wanted to go the opposite way and make downtown LA feel slightly fake. As you say, something's off. It's not just that it's pouring with rain, but something's off. And what you'll notice in the film is that it is very simplistic. All the advertising has gone. A lot of the street signage has gone. Everything is just gone, except for the bare basics. And this really related to the idea of somebody constructing this environment in their head in a dream. And the idea that your brain can create an environment when you're asleep in your dream state, but there are details that are missing. And it's because your brain only has a certain amount of capacity. It's like a hard drive. It's only going to be able to fill in so much detail. And so for me, the best way to show that visually was to do precisely that, was to remove a lot of that excess detail. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned, by the way, the James Bond influence. And I'm thinking specifically about the Snow Fortress sequence mm. and the influence that Bond films, such as On Her Majesty's Secret Service and the work of Ken Adam, by the way, also as a production designer. Ken Adam is, is an extraordinary man. In many ways, uh, I secretly wish I was Ken Adam. Ken has this superstardom that even exceeds his incredible production design legacy. He is a brilliant master of suggestion and really is the guy who I think is um, the grandfather of, of epic sets, in, certainly from the 60s on. I mean, he started a whole trend, as, as we know, through the James Bond films of creating what we now laughingly call the bad guy's lair, you know, but that all started with, with people like Ken Adam. Chris just really wanted that snowy landscape at the end of the film. And we went to the top of a mountain in the middle of the summer. And he said, right, I want you to build me a set here. And we took off in the helicopter and that was that. But of course, there's this famous thing that happens when the director's there, everyone's nodding their head and saying, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. But as soon as the director's left, suddenly all the problems come out because you're the guy that they can actually tell the truth to. And the truth was that we were not allowed to put any foundations into the ground because this was a protected parkland. And so there I was with a director who believed he was going to have a huge, huge fortress in four months. And the park rangers telling me there's no way you're going to build a set on this mountain. So that's when you hope and look for that sort of inspiration. And mine came via a very worried drink in a bar at the end of that scouting day. And I was literally staring at some ice melting in my glass. And I suddenly had an idea. And the idea was that we were going to build the foundations of the fortress out of ice. The technical problem being that when you are in a national park, you can't put any foreign material into the ground. You can't penetrate the ground. But water is okay. So we dug enormous trench holes, huge cylindrical trench holes, filled them with water and waited for it to get cold enough to freeze. And the water froze around the wooden posts. Therefore, the ice became my concrete. By the time you had Leonardo DiCaprio and all these people coming up to this mountain and they're staring at a structure that's 200 feet wide and 90 feet high, and you're so high up that your ears are popping and it's minus 30 degrees. Everyone's there and the structure looks very solid and they're making a base camp in a structure that is supported by ice. Were you worried at all? I was fucking petrified. Ice turns out to be so strong that it is absolutely comparable with, with concrete under the right conditions. Of course, all we had to do then was wait for the spring and I literally got pictures sent to me of this thing collapsing as it thawed, this huge structure. The other thing we couldn't do is we couldn't paint the set. I got an emergency call from the paint department up in Calgary and they said, Guy, we have a big problem. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, we can't paint the set. And I said, why can't you paint the set? They said, literally, as we remove the paintbrush 
from the tin of paint and put it on the structure, in that time, our brushes are freezing. And I said, that's fucking ridiculous. And I got on a plane and I went up there and I literally saw it with my own eyes. They said, watch this. And they, <laughs> they pulled the paint brushes out or the rollers out and you could hear it crackling. And by the time the roller got to the set, it was, there was nothing there. So again, I, I went back to the bar, same bar in Calgary, more crackling ice. I thought there has to be a way, there has to be a way to get around this. And the only thing I knew about, because I just, you know, you're a jack of all trades. All I could think about was antifreeze. Now antifreeze is green. It's really bright green. You know what I mean, antifreeze? You put it in your car radiator, stops your car from freezing. So I went the next day and I said, look, I've bought some antifreeze. Can we do some experiments? They said, well, what are you thinking? And I said, well, can we, we got a water-based paint. If we add antifreeze to the paint, will that work? And they said, well, we've never done that before. And so we added this antifreeze to this gray paint. And of course it went green. And I said, look, don't worry about that for now. Let's see if we can get the paint on the set. Let's see if we can get this paint on the set. And lo and behold, there we were painting the fortress at the end of Inception in green. I said, okay, right. So now we've got that. Let's start mixing color. And really it came down to the color chart. So we started looking at a color chart. We started looking at greens and blues on one side of the color circle. And we started looking at pinks and reds on the other side. So we just started chucking a lot of red paint into this green gray paint, eventually finding the right level of color combination to create that concrete gray that you see in the film. So that was literally an on the job, how do we fix this situation? And I, I'm very proud of those moments because I don't get much help. I mean, I've got people around me now, I think, who, who would help me think like that. But I, I think at, at that time, I was very much on my own. And um, it was sort of, you're either gonna solve it or you're gonna fail. Did you ever come up with a plan B in regards to, you had the structure up, which I think was 99% of the job, but. Well, I think of the future, I would handle a set like that very, very differently. Um, I think the sections of set would have been painted prior to even being taken up onto the mountain. But, you know, everything we do in a film is very much, you know, it's a guessing game. Will this work? And if you want to push the envelope and if you want to try things that haven't been done before, then there's always that risk of failure. And you have to be prepared to stay up, uh, do whatever you can to make sure something works. The funny punchline, of course, about the Inception uh, Fortress and the paint is that, of course, the paint never dried. So the costumes that they wear at the Fortress set are these white snow outfits. And I, I had to beg and apologize to our costume designer profusely because every time the actors would come off the mountain, they sort of had touched gray on the building and now their white suits had gray paint on. Whatever works. Whatever works, right? Before I ask you about the final few projects, I, I thought it'd be worth mentioning your relationship with your art director and your set decorator, yeah. who I think are incredibly important players in the production design team. So I was wondering how you try and work with them to faithfully translate you know, your initial sketches into a finished set. And when it comes to set decorating, how do you go about finding elements to dress a set that feel emotionally specific, that feel right for the movie? Well, I'm very lucky I get to work with, as I say, I can never say enough about my crew. Really, no designer is anything without his crew. It's about who you have and their commitment and loyalty to the project and their belief in the project as well. I always get really sad when I'm pitching a new film to key people in my crew and I sort of get, oh. <laughs> I, get, I sort of get a, a lukewarm reception. It's really important that people get excited about a project. And I think once they're on a project, they usually do get excited about it. Sometimes initially it seems not that interesting. But with decorators, I've been very lucky. I have three or four collaborators that I'm able to luckily rotate between who seem to become available. And uh, they are half of the job. I get very involved in the set decorating. I pray I don't annoy my decorators, but I always feel that I would prefer to be involved in it rather than just complain about it if it's not right. So we spend a lot of time shopping for specific items. We spend a lot of time designing and building specific items for the sets. I've even gone as far as actually sketched out props and dressing that I would like to have built. And it, it really is a, an important part of of the process, it really is. I mean, the dressing is everything. 
again, we're talking about trying to manage teams and try and manage resources to the best of your abilities. I wanted to briefly, you touched on it, talking about passengers, but I'm also thinking about Superman Returns. And it sounds like for those two projects, it was a very short turnaround time in regards to getting to prep the movie. And I want to ask you about this concept of having to, number one, deliver under pressure when time is limited, and at the same time, managing your resources as a department. On one side is choosing how much time and resources to spend on on an individual set. And then I can imagine when the ball's rolling and you just got to go, 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 you're probably building enough sets to make it to the end of the week, the end of the month, and you're trying to schedule those in a specific order. So could you talk about managing your your resources? Yes, you you have to just be smart about where you spend the money on on any film, uh, particularly high fantasy and science fiction films where a large part of what you're looking at on the screen is fantasy is built in as a stage set or it's a digital background or whatever it is you have to make sure that you're very careful about where you spend your money and certainly with a film like passengers if we're going to talk budget we did not have enough money for the appetite or the scope of that film it was a immensely ambitious film our director was a good man but had never worked on anything as big as that before and I think was a little lost when it came to allocating the resources. He left that very much to the department heads. For me, on Passengers, it was very clear that we needed to paint this sort of picture of a Robinson Crusoe character, a man who was going to be alone, and uh, we needed to absorb those environments and see the immensity of them and feel the, the coldness of them and also feel the attraction of the bar the sort of the Art Deco bar, which of course I never hide the fact was a massive inspiration from uh, another Kubrick film, The Shining. But the way I made that work financially, I didn't really make it work, but the way I tried to make it work, and it would have gone to plan perfectly, I think, is I made sure that there's sort of a chase rescue sequence at the end of Passengers. They have to fix the ship. And that really didn't interest me, if I'm honest with you, as a designer, because that just felt and sounded like every other space film. What I was interested in was this very unique scenario of somebody going absolutely mad alone on a spaceship. It reminded me of some of the classic sort of 1970s science fiction films. There are some amazing ones, you know, whether it's the original Solaris. There are several great films that that are about loneliness in space, and I really wanted to capture that. So I put most of my budget on those in the first third of the film where you establish the ship. And I very much on purpose under budgeted the sort of the chase sequence and the sort of the discovery and we got to do this in the engine room then we got to do this then we got to get out of this you know all that stuff became really under budgeted and I strained my crew very cruelly to manage to stretch what I thought was a a fantastic epic vision over a over a film that did not really believe I don't think they really believed it was going to look that good. I think that was a big surprise to them. It's my understanding that you guys were also smart enough. I don't want to use the word recycle because there was nothing really recycled about it, but to design sets that could have a second life once you might have finished with it. That's fascinating. Yeah, I did a lot of that. That that I do in every film, because if you're going to spend the money and have these gorgeous paint finishes and beautifully detailed parting lines and joints within a sort of a manufactured spaceship, then for God's sake, use it again. Why not? No set's ever shot twice. I used to be very tentative about that in the early part of my career. Oh, we can't show that set. We've already seen it. And I've let all that go because I think you can really play with an environment and turn it into something very, very different. Hello? Anybody here? Hello? Do you know what's going on? Nobody else is awake. I think something went wrong with the hibernation pods. We woke up too soon. 90 years too soon. This can't be happening. We have to go back to sleep. We can't. Before I ask you about the last project of our conversation today, I thought it'd be worth also asking you about your lifelong love for architecture. And I'm just curious to ask you how all this influence, whether it's coming from nature or again, the great artist that came before you, finds its way back into your work. About it, you had that to say, quote, I naturally excel at designing spaces that involve a certain amount of technology and interaction with people. 
Funny we're talking about passengers right now. While I tend to look at nature a lot when I'm designing, my draw to architects like Frank Lloyd Wright stems from my years in Japan, close quote. I mean, and, and also too, I was thinking about the 2009 movie Agora, which is you mentioned, and that's a perfect blend of how a knowledge and a passion for history finds its way back into a useful creative expression. Could you talk about how all of this influence hits you on a day-to-day -day basis and then how you try and draw from that when you go back to set? Sure. It's good that you mention Agora because I met this amazing Spanish director who's become a very dear friend of mine, Alejandro Menabar. He had directed, I should say, films like The Others with Nicole Kidman. He had directed Open Your Eyes, which was sort of the cult classic from Spain. And he wanted to go on this epic journey into antiquity and write a film about this female philosopher in the fourth century, the time of Alexandria. And there really isn't much left from that time period at all. Yeah, you've got the pyramids and you've got a few columns here and there, but the city of Alexandria does not have much left from this great cultural centre that it was. And so a lot of the design of the sets for Alexandria came from looking at very unusual sources. I'll give you a good example. We had a prefect who was a sort of a Roman overseer of the city of Alexandria, and he needed to have a throne. And we didn't really have any visual reference or historical reference about what his throne would have looked like. And so during the research period, we found these tiny decorative lions. They were about three inches long and they were little paperweights that somebody would have used to hold open parchments on their table. And I repurposed these incredibly detailed lions, blew them up in scale by about 200%, and they became the armrests to this incredible throne, which was dramatic and totally correct for the, the character in the film. And although he never had a throne like this in real life, at least the elements that I was bringing to the design were historically correct from the period. So aesthetically, I was being very true to the source material. And at the same time, I was being allowed to be very creative at the same time. It's interesting, as you move further forward in history, recreating history is easier because you have the invention of books, you have the invention of photography, you have the invention of sound and recording. And so the further forward we come, it's easier to recreate history. But when you go that far back, it's really about throwing darts at a board blindfold. You know, you really don't know how accurate you're being. All you can do is take the bare bones of what we have in the real world and utilize those across an entire film. I also want to ask you about The Nutcracker and The Four Realms. Right. We've talked a lot about building sets. I am fascinated, I was fascinated to hear before I saw the movie, how much you shot on existing locations. For example, the courtyard in Nutcracker, mm. when the kids come out and find the strings, you have a, an empty square and you gotta understand what are we gonna build and what are we gonna use from this? Yeah. Could you talk about that process of just being able to picture the final thing and building as little as possible so you can work off the strengths of an existing location? Absolutely. You know, locations are a lot of fun. They really are for any, any creative team. They present their own set of headaches You are a film crew that is now going out to the real world. So suddenly you're interacting with people that actually go to bed at night and get up in the morning and have real lives. So you have to build your crazy antisocial film schedule around real world people, you know, and, and uh, there has to be a certain amount of flexibility. Once you've got over those differences, then you're free to start thinking about what you can do to a place, you know, with the permission, of course, of the people who live there. In the case of the Nutcracker, we came across that extraordinary mansion, which had been, I think, owned by one branch of the British military, whether it was the RAF or whoever it was, and they had let it go for the first time, and it was going to be turned into a hotel. But we had a window of opportunity to use this location while it was still empty and turn it into Drossel Meyer's extraordinary home. 
this sort of magical place. You know, for me, we started The Nutcracker using very muted tones. It was a very depressing opening. You know, the lead character had lost her mother. Her father was alone. He was trying to prepare Christmas for them. And I had removed the colour red, which, by the way, as we all know, is a key colour for Christmas. I had completely banned the colour red from the opening of The Nutcracker, from the costumes to the sets to everything. It was extraordinarily hard to decorate Christmas without using red. But we did it. The moment you get to Drosselmeyer's and the doors open, you are washed over with this rich blood red because I wanted it to be completely garish and impactful, this sort of liquid red everywhere. But the most interesting thing about Drosselmeyer's, as you say, was this weird party, which was called the Cobweb Party. This was a real thing in Victorian times where they would have these little bits of yarn with people's names on that they would sort of find and then they'd have to follow the yarn until they got to their present and it would sort of go all over the house. This is a real thing. And so to me, the only way to really show that would be with an aerial shot on a crane looking down so that you could communicate that notion of a spider's web. And in order to do that, we had to take the party outside. And so there was this beautiful little courtyard in the middle of this extraordinary building that formed a sort of a giant C shape around this courtyard. And so we built this little sort of pagoda in the middle, put the maze and all that stuff. But actually, it was a very run-down paddock. There was nothing there except just mud and grass and gravel. And so everything that you see back there, from the maze to the, the lighting, really just the, the sort of magical quality of it was all brought to that location by us for that night shoot. We began our very long conversation talking about Brothers Graham and, and your use of miniatures. So my last question for you in regards to Nutcracker is in regards to the snowy sets and, and adopting traditional techniques yeah. so that you can create layering within the frame, which I think is a very important part of your job because you're creating three-dimensional spaces, but you're adapting them into a two-dimensional movie. Mm. Once more, quote, director Lars Hallstrom wanted a very traditional feel for the film. We used a lot of painted backings rather than relying on green screen and visual effects, close quote. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think these old school techniques like painted backings or miniature mirrors, forced perspective you mentioned, help you create layering? And why do you think, you know, in, in 2019, it's so important to remind yourself once in a while that there is opportunity for these kind of methods? I think Lasse Holström, who, look, he's a brilliant Swedish director who has made some incredible films. He's a very emotional man. He's a very poetic man. Although he's happy to live and work in, in the sort of the modern film world using digital effects and the like, I think Lasse felt a deep-rooted belief that we needed to create as many environments as we could because half our cast were children. And he was concerned that if he shot these children on these stages with green screen, that it would harm their performance. He needed them to believe they really were in these places. And so it was my job to provide sets that gave a complete 360, completely believable environment so that the kids, when they got on stage, could feel that they were really there. And um, the snowy forest was, was a real challenge for us. We found it very hard to create the snow. We were using sort of insulation and flocking on these trees to create that sort of very heavy snowfall that looks so, I think, so convincing. And I was able to search out and pull some guys out of retirement in some cases to help us with the painted backings, which again, the director really wanted. He wanted a sort of an old style, a sort of 1970s feel Disney film. And so he didn't want it to have as much perhaps gloss as some of the other films that Disney have created so beautifully. And so we were living in that world. We also had budgetary constraints. This may be hard for those who have actually seen The Nutcracker, but The Nutcracker was created for a budget that pales in comparison to, for example, Beauty and the Beast. It, we were not on the same level financially. So it was important to create this world within this, given a fantastic budget that we had, but it still was not, and never is enough. You know, I'm always going to say that as a designer, but you learn to work within the confines of what you are given, you know, and you learn to make it work. So our painted backings and our reliance on 
360 degree realistic sets or stylized realistic sets was really important to keep our film's appetite where it needed to be, but also to create this kind of immersive fantasy environment for the child actors so they could feel that they were really there. Same thing with the fairground and the sort of the giant Mother Ginger. Sure, the giant puppet Mother Ginger could have been all CGI, but it was so much better to build a 30-foot puppet that actually worked. You know, it seems crazy, but we, we did it. Merry Christmas, Clara. Godfather. Your gift this year will be something you'll never forget. Most people don't realize there are troubled realms within our world. And you hold the key to their secrets. Remember, Clara, nothing is as it seems. My last question to you goes in regards to your legacy of work and the variety of beautiful projects you have worked on over the last few years. So I was wondering, what do you think has kept you so passionate and busy over the last 22 years in the business? And I was wondering, what is the conversation with yourself in regards to the great work you've produced and the great work you're looking to produce? Mm. Oh, look, it's it's. Uh, thank you, first of all, for saying that. It means a lot to me. I, I really care about the work I do and I really live for my job. It's probably very obvious. I don't know. You know, I came from a small farm in in the south of England. I was destined to be a chicken farmer. That's really the truth. And I didn't want that for myself. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to get to a London art school, uh, which then led me to the Royal College of Art, which was the best art school we have really in, in England, art and design school. I was studying industrial design. I was not a film student. I There was a film course at the Royal College of Art, but it wasn't great. All the people that are from the Royal College of Art, Ridley Scott and, and his late brother, they went to the Royal College of Art, but they studied illustrations. So I got there and I tried to uh, to get into the film course as sort of a side project, but it never really worked out. I, I did a couple of props and things for student films, but I realised it, it, it wasn't the time to strike. And so I left uh, England, got a job at Sony in Japan. I was hired by Sony to really embark on their last generations of Walkmans and Discmans before that technology disappeared. And I became very disillusioned with being a, an industrial designer and would return to my apartment in Japan, this tiny little room that I had, and would immerse myself in drawings and building models. And a friend of mine came to my apartment, saw all this crazy stuff and said, holy shit, you should have an exhibition. And so I held an exhibition in Japan. It was organized and wasn't a particularly big one. It was just at a sort of local gallery. And quite by chance, at exactly the same time, there was a major retrospective going on about George Lucas and Industrial Light and Magic that had found its way to Japan. And the art director and curator of the exhibit had happened to wander down the street and wander into this gallery and had seen my work and left a business card. And so when I went to pack up the exhibit after a couple of weeks, there was this business card that I was given that had the famous Industrial Light and Magic logo on it. And it just said on the back, call us. And so I waited to the middle of the night, as you do in Japan, because it's totally different time zone, and called up. And this very charismatic voice came on the other end and said, look, how do you fancy joining us? We're, we're going to start the new Star Wars films. And although we can't hire you for that, we would like to hire you to fill in the gaps of the people that are going to leave ILM to go up to George's ranch to start working on episode one. And so I just jumped at the chance. And what I realized very quickly when I got to California was that I was tenaciously interested in this business. And ILM became film school for me. I got a second chance to educate myself, really. I got a second degree and I, I did everything. I was a special effects technician. I directed a music video. I edited a bunch of stuff. I did model making, storyboarding, all the disciplines you can possibly think of. I took part in at ILM. Thank God for that place. I wonder if it's still the same today, but it was extremely loose and collaborative. There were only about, I think, 250 or 300 members at the time. So it was a very cool place to be, a very creative hub. 
when I left ILM, I was already aware of what it was I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was production design. So I came down to LA and that's where we pick up from the beginning of this interview, where I was illustrating for other production designers and trying to just understand how it worked and how I was going to make my break and what, what were going to be the opportunities. And the opportunities came, you know, The Cell was a big one for me, the film The Cell. I entered The Cell and Tom Foden, the brilliant production designer, wanted me for that film and I sort of begged him, could I come on the film to illustrate the hell out of it and help him design the hell out of it? But in return, could he help me get into the Art Directors Guild? And he said, sure, because he's just a very cool guy. And so you would, along the way, illustrating, get these opportunities to climb up the ladder slowly but surely. And, uh, you know, as you say, as I look back, I just feel very, very lucky to have worked hard. I did work very, very hard and still do. But obviously a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. There's no doubt for everybody in the industry. And you just have to take those chances. And if they work for you, great. If they don't, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you get back on the horse. But I, I love it. And and looking forward, I, I really hate the fact that I'm, you know, 50 now. I, I hate it because I want to be, I want to be 29 again so I can do this all over again, but much better. But I, I still think I've got a few films left in me. I don't think uh, you'll be seeing the end of me for a few years. Again, you not only have worked so hard, but you've been so generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. This has been so enlightening. And I'm thank sure you. we're so glad that you're the first production designer. We're so, I am honored. We're so lucky. I am honored. And I, and I, I think your questions are, are really brilliant, really beautifully researched. I really appreciate that. You know, it's nice that somebody like you can be that professional and just really understand who it is you're speaking to. I noticed it with your other, your other interviews. I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity. Thank you. Guy, thank you so, so much for your time. And, and again, best of luck with anything you may be working on right now. All right. Good to talk to you. Take care. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Guy for taking time out of his busy schedule to record this episode. Also, a special thank you to Eric Boss, who donates his time to mix all of these interviews. If you really like the podcast, please help us out and take a moment to subscribe, review, and share the show with your friends. It's what allows us to bring you new conversations every month. You can also find us on Facebook to receive first-hand updates on which guests we'll be speaking to next. Be on the lookout for a coming interview with Will Clark, Quentin Tarantino's first assistant director, with whom We'll be talking about Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, and a little movie titled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So stay tuned. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>